0: We're going to go start in First Thessalonians this morning. Currently, our study in Luke has us digging into prophecy. And prophecy, quite honestly, can be supremely interesting. It can be intriguing. But prophecy can also be quite fearful to a follower of Jesus. Let's just be honest what prophecy really is. It's a lot of really, really bad stuff that gets worse, Right? I mean, honestly, look at me. Isn't that what you read in the Bible? It's a lot of really bad stuff that gets worse until it gets really, really good, right? And I want to pick up with the idea of where we left off last week and give a little overview, if you will, of prophecy as as we jump back into Luke chapter 21 in just a few minutes. Several of you raised the question this week of, Well, I really thought we weren't going to be a part of all the things you described, Pastor Dan. I really thought we were going to miss that. And I thought I kind of laid that out last week, but apparently I'm not as clear as I think I am. My wife might be right. (laughs) I don't think so, but anyway. (laughs) I want you to look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because Paul is writing to believers who have received some bad information about end times, and they have questions. And in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4, he describes an event. He says, Brothers, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep or those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who who do have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep." For this we declare to you by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That text is directed specifically at a specific group of people that are believers, correct? It's to the church. This is to those who are in Christ, to those who are followers of Jesus. We might say to those who have been saved, right? And what he is saying to them is there's a coming event where, where the graves that, that, that have been closed and, and the people have been buried will be opened up. Believers will be reunited with, with their spirits. Their bodies will be reunited with their spirits in heaven. Those who are alive are going to be snatched away. We commonly call that the rapture. This is to be an encouragement to believers. Do you see what it says there in verse 18? Encourage believers with this. Thursday morning when I stood at the graveside just down the road here of Ed Garibrandt, I looked at his daughters who are both believers and I said this verse to them. This is the encouragement. One day, we, we say that this is a final resting place. That's a lie. <laughs> Ed Garibrandt's final resting place is not on, at Green Hill Cemetery. His final resting place is going to be in the presence of Christ. But then, Paul turns his attention now in chapter 5 to a passage of Scripture that we looked at as we ended the service last week. And he says, now concerning the times and season, brothers, you have no need that anything be written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Day of the Lord and rapture are not the same thing, church. Day of the Lord and rapture are not the same thing, okay? Day of the Lord is an Old Testament term. 19 times it's used in the Old Testament, four times in in the New Testament, and we're going to see another term in in Luke chapter 21 that closely corresponds to day of the Lord this morning, okay? It involves, this day of the Lord, though, involves really some really scary things. Look at verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. We talked about those labor pains last week, okay? We talked all about that. And he says, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let's keep awake and be sober. And then he says this in verse 9. Look what he says. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ okay? This steep in the night description, the labor pains were what Jesus was referring to in Luke chapter 21 as he was there giving the Olivet Discourse. These are all things that are going to happen, but, but Paul here tells us in verse 9, God's not destined us, the church, for wrath. You see, we deserve the wrath of God, right? Church, we deserve it, but we're not getting it because Jesus took it for us on the cross, But there's a group of people who will face the wrath of God, the unmitigated wrath of God. And so what Paul is teaching us is this, the church is going to suffer persecution and maybe we should put it this way, we are not going to go through the tribulation period that comes after the rapture, but we are certainly going to suffer in the lead up that builds up to it we're going to suffer. If you're paying attention at all to what's even happening right now in our country, this whole issue of life is not just about the constitutional right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's now being framed as this is a religious thing, and and pretty soon it's going to be turned right on the church of Jesus Christ. Be prepared for it. And so, with that in mind, turn with me to Luke chapter 21 this morning. This morning, we're going to look at two passages of Scripture. We're going to look at Luke chapter 21, and we're going to look at Matthew 24, a specific passage in Matthew 24, because Jesus now, as he's working his way through the Olivet Discourse, now turns his attention on the one city that is central to all of the Scripture. What city is that, church? What city is at the center of it all in the Scripture? It's Jerusalem and he's going to turn his attention to Jerusalem. It's known as the city of God. It's the joyful city, the city of peace, the city of the great king. Elsewhere, it's referred to as Zion. It's central to to much of our scripture, and it's going to be the focal point of the end time. Jerusalem is going to be the place where all the world will focus its energies and its attention. The city's going to be destroyed, but it's also going to be replaced, which is good news. According to Revelation chapter 21, there will be a new Jerusalem for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Guess what? You'll get to be in the new Jerusalem. Isn't that awesome? So this morning, there's two events that Jesus completely predicts and talks about leading up to his final coming. Next week, we're going to talk about Christ's second coming. These two events deal specifically with the city of Jerusalem and they are precursors to Christ's return and they deal with the tribulation period. So Luke chapter 21 verses 20 through 24 and then we're going to flip over to Matthew chapter 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. If you're the kind of person that marks in your Bible, mark that word desolation. That's a pretty important word. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those who are out in the country, not those who are out in the country, enter it. For these are, another phrase to mark, days of vengeance. Days of vengeance. Very similar terminology to day of the Lord. Isaiah and the prophet Micah both use that term, days of vengeance, in their writings. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Go with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. In this very context, here is what Jesus says, and here's what Matthew records for us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and then he puts a parenthetical, Matthew says, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. Circle that. Great tribulation. Such as not is not seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, it's going to be obvious when it's time for Christ to return. No one knows the day or hour, but it's going to be obvious. Those two truths could both be true. And then he says this, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, which is a foreshadowing of, some, of a very significant event. So in these two passages, we have two things that Jesus talks about. One, the destruction of Jerusalem, and two, this thing called the abomination of desolation. Both events are closely tied together. Luke 21.20, I had you circle the word desolation. Matthew 24, we just read about the abomination of desolation. And in verse 15, Jesus clues us in. He said, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So that means we got to go somewhere else this morning in our, in our Bibles. We've got to go back to Daniel's prophecy. Join me in the book of Daniel. Join me in the book of Daniel. and We're going to look at two, two chapters in the book of Daniel because Daniel talks about this twice. He talks about it in Daniel chapter 9, and he talks about it in Daniel chapter 11. I want to start in Daniel chapter 11. So in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel describes, we don't have time to to take the whole chapter, it's a lengthy one. He's describing this king that's going to show up in Jerusalem, and in verse 31 It says this, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. The abomination of desolation. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder." He's describing a situation here. He's describing an event. And what he's describing actually took place. History records for us. In 168 BC, there was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. You may have heard of this guy. He was a Syrian king. Okay? I know I'm a history guy, and this all jazzes me up, but this is really important. Syria is north of Israel. Egypt is south of Israel. Antiochus Epiphanes had this desire to control that part of the world that he, was, that, that he was in, and so he made war with Egypt. He marched right through Israel, went down to Egypt, and made war with Egypt. Problem is, when he got to Egypt, he ran into a force greater than the Egyptians. The Romans got word that he was coming, and the Romans wanted to keep Egypt for themselves, and so the Romans totally rebuffed his advances, And like any egotistical world leader, he got bent out of shape. And so on his retreat, he came back from Egypt, going to Syria. He has to go through what country? Israel. Guess what he did with his anger? He took it out on a neutral party in this one. Israel wasn't even involved in this, and he took it out on, on the Jewish people. And so, after he had been rebuffed by Rome, he took out his frustration on Israel, and during that time, Syria occupied Israel, specifically Jerusalem, and during that occupation, several things happened. One, they banned all sacrifices in the temple. They banned all sacrifices. Secondly, to desecrate the temple, they took a pig and they offered its blood as sacrifice on the altar. If you know anything about Jewish law and Mosaic law, what's one animal that you never were allowed to offer a sacrifice? Pig. And then thirdly, they placed an idol of Zeus right in the middle of the temple, and they worshiped Zeus. Jesus and the Jews referred to this as the abomination of desolation. The temple basically was rendered useless for worship, rendered useless for worship. So, when we read that in Matthew, it's easy to read that and say, okay, this has already taken place, this has already been fulfilled, but there's another reference in Daniel to this if you go back two chapters to Daniel chapter 9. Have you noticed this when you read Old Testament prophecy, that many times there's a dual fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? There's a a kind of localized, if you will, uh, occurrence that, that kind of fulfills that prophecy, but usually those prophecies refer to something much larger. This is one of those cases. In Daniel chapter 9, as Daniel is praying for his people, Gabriel comes and brings him this answer to his prayer that Daniel, I'm sure when he first got it, is like, what kind of answer is this? what kind of answer is this? And it, and it seems kind of cryptic, but don't get taken in by the language here. Let's just try to understand it. Verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, as Daniel is getting his answer from Gabriel, this is what he is told. Seventy weeks Are decreed, or 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. There's a key phrase in this that helps us to understand something. It says that these 77s, weeks are sevens, he says this is going to atone for iniquity and it's gonna bring about Everlasting righteousness Here's a question for you How long does everlasting righteousness last, church? Forever, right? Do we live in a world that has everlasting righteousness present right now? You sure? You you confident in that? Okay So he's talking about something that hasn't happened yet Daniel's prayer was Is, Lord, when are we going to get to return? When is is the temple going to be rebuilt? When are we going to be able to go back and worship? And God's giving him the answer. So verse 25, here's here's the beginning of the answer. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens. Okay? Seven times seven is what, middle school math kids? Seven times seven is what? 49, okay? Here here we have Daniel receiving his prophecy. There's going to be seven sevens. God's true to his word, and I want you to see this. From the time that Artaxerxes gave the command to rebuild the temple until it was rebuilt, guess how many years it took? Seven sevens is 49. 49 years from that command, okay? So, Check a box. We got one right here. So there's going, to be, there's going to be an anointed one. A prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a mount, but in a troubled time. 62 times seven. I'm not expecting the middle school math kids to get this. It's 434. Okay? Verse 26, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. An anointed one. What's another word for anointed one, church? Messiah. So if you take 49 and you add to it 434, you you come up with this period of time that leads us directly to the time that Christ was crucified. God's given the word here to Daniel. Daniel's writing this down, okay? The Messiah is cut off. Okay? Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat. End of verse 25. And after 62 weeks an anointed one shall cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And it shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So there's 69 weeks that have been fulfilled, but there's a a 70th week. This is all about Jerusalem. This is all about Israel. What do you know about world history, about Israel? Has Israel been a major player in world history for a long time? It has, but recently has it been much of a big player? No, it's been on the receiving end of all of the world's, all of the world's hatred, right? And so what, what Daniel here is receiving, what God is t- telling him is this, that there's coming another seven-year period where Jerusalem is going to be front and center again. I believe, and Scripture, I think, backs it up strongly, that this is the seven-year tribulation period. See, right now, this is the Gentile age. The Bible says nothing's going to happen until the gospel is proclaimed to all the generations, okay, or to all the nations, right? And all the nations could be summed up under one word, Gentile, right? Right? God is biding His time in heaven. He has determined the time when, when all of these events will come into play. But right now, it's the Gentile age. It's, it's the time for the gospel to go to all the world. Never doubt for a second that God has done with Israel. God still has Israel as his, the apple of His eye. It may not seem like it right now but if you look at verse 27, someone's going to come and make a strong covenant with many for one week, for, for, for seven years. That one, I would correspond and tell you is this, is the one named in Revelation chapter 13 as the beast. We know him as the Antichrist. He will appear on the world scene, and he will be a dynamic leader. He, he will be charismatic in, in a way that he will be able to bring all the nations together. Imagine this, all of the nations together and forge a peace treaty with all the nations. Can you imagine? Can you imagine all the nations getting along together? This guy's going to be able to do it. Revelation 13 says this, that he is granted great authority and power from God which should point us to this. This all seems to be very man-centered and man-focused, and it deals with the world where there are men, but let's understand this is all about God's plan. This is all God's plan. He's going to give this Antichrist power and authority, and the Antichrist is going to, as all men do, misuse that power and authority. And at the end of, of 42 months, halfway through, he's going to break the treaty that he makes. And it's specifically the treaty that he makes with Israel. The Jewish people will be coming back to Jerusalem. They'll be offering sacrifice at a temple that will be rebuilt. That seems so far-fetched to us right now, doesn't it? It seems so far-fetched to us. You see pictures of Jerusalem, or many of you have visited Jerusalem, and and you go there and you're like, "Well, well, the temple was, there's like a couple of mosques sitting there. I don't think that they're willingly going to give us the real estate back to build the temple. There will be a great peace treaty. But at the end of three and a half years, halfway into this, notice verse 27, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. He's going to make the temple, again, a place that's worthless for worship. Now, we've seen what Daniel has to say. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 24. Because as Christ talks about this, he points out a couple important details. In Matthew chapter 24, as he's dealing with this, he says this, verse 21, Then there will be great tribulation. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. What Jesus is pointing out to us is this, (laughs) And, and, and Christ is giving his commentary on this for us. He's saying this is nothing like the world has ever seen or ever will see. Because the first time that God poured out his wrath was in a flood, right? He poured out his wrath on the world, right? And then he said, he made a promise, I'll never pour out my wrath like that again until what? Until I pour it out in the end, right? But there was another time that God poured out his wrath. And it was when Jesus hung on the cross. But it wasn't for all the world to see. That was kind of a private moment. And we got a brief glimpse of what it was like when Christ on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, God poured out his judgment on the sin of mankind as it was placed upon Christ. And God poured his full wrath and fury out on my sin and on your sin, on Christ, as he hung on the cross. But that really wasn't visible for the world to see, was it? In many ways. Now Jesus is saying this. There's going to be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be, because this always has been the Father's world. We sing that song, this is my Father's world. Well, because it's His world, He has every right to do with it what He desires to do with it, and He made a perfect world. And man corrupted that world, and that world is broken, and we are living proof that we live in a broken world, are we not? And because we live in a broken world that that will not be redeemed, will not receive Christ as its Messiah, that world will be judged. That world will be judged, and God's wrath will be poured out. Man's going to be a part of this, but remember, this is God's judgment. This is God's judgment that's coming. What's interesting is from Revelation chapter 13, if we had time, we'd go look. But during that time, there's going to be believers here on the earth. There, there is going to be believers here on this earth. It, it talks about how the saints, how the saints, and how the saints will, will basically be fighting for their lives and on the run. But that's not the church. Remember, we saw this last week, I reminded you again, 1 Thessalonians 5, the church is not destined to see the wrath of God, we've, we've faced it already. Christ faced it for us, excuse me, we didn't face it, Christ faced it for us. So the first event that Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse that deals with Jerusalem is the abomination of desolation, the, the rendering of the temple useless, the breaking of the treaty during the seven-year tribulation period. Now we finally get to Luke. Turn with me to Luke chapter chapter 21. But that's not the only thing that's going to happen. The events that Jesus described with the abomination of desolation are going to culminate with a siege of Jerusalem like has never been seen. Now, many have read this and studied this and believe that this already happened in AD 70. And it's historical fact that the Romans came in and sacked the city, okay? Okay? And, and, and I understand how someone could come to that view, but, but there is a phrase that I, when I read this, I wanted you to circle and, and to understand. Verse 22, these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Jesus specifically uses language that the prophet Isaiah used hundreds of years before in Isaiah chapter 34, talking about the day of the Lord, saying that was a day of vengeance. Jesus is not referring to Rome coming in and and sacking Jerusalem. These are prophetic, dare I say, apocalyptic passages that we're dealing with here. You see, Jerusalem has always been under siege. The historian Eric Klein, who has spent his life studying Jerusalem's history, estimates there's been at least 118 separate conflicts in and for Jerusalem in the last 4,000 years, 118 separate ones that he knows of. Jerusalem has been completely destroyed twice. It's been captured and recaptured 44 times. In all of the time that he's studied this, it's only peacefully changed hands twice in its history between governments. So there's been many instances in history where you could point to and say, well, this prophecy was fulfilled, but they don't correspond to the days of vengeance. Notice what happens. Jerusalem will be trampled. Jerusalem will be trampled. Jerusalem's been trampled before, but it's not going to be trampled like it's going to be trampled this time. There's going to be a siege that's so huge That from Jerusalem, it's going to back up all the way to the valley of Megiddo to the north, which is 60 miles to the north. When I say Megiddo, many of you are like, are you talking about Armageddon? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Armageddon isn't just about the Valley of Megiddo. Those, those forces, the, and, and, and God's going to do amazing things. If we had time, we would look at it. In the book of Revelation, God uses supernatural events to change the world's geography and topography so that the nations can march right in on Israel. It's like God's like, come on in, come in a little closer, come a little closer, come a little closer. And he draws all the nations to Jerusalem, and there's so many invading armies that they are backed up 60 miles into the valley of Megiddo. What's interesting is Christ is giving this message from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, tells us the exact location where Christ will return to this earth. Guess where it is, church? Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives. And when Christ returns, and we'll focus on this next week, it won't be pretty. Revelation talks about the blood being as high as a horse's bridle. It talks about how he comes with the returning with the sword in his mouth, and we'll look at that next week, because Jesus here in Luke 21, in our text next week, talks about his return. You say, so, PD, why does this matter to us? Why do these two events matter? If we're not going to be here, why do we take the time to cover them? Well, I think there's a couple things we need to understand here. One, there's this biblical command, and I want you to see it. Go back with me to Psalm 122. Tucked away, right after the 119th Psalm, which gets all of our attention... And then Psalm 121, you know, one of my favorites, I would lift up to my, eye, my eyes to the hills from where my help comes from, is Psalm 122. And Psalm 122 is all about Jerusalem. And in Psalm 122, verse 6, we have this command. You've heard it before, I'm sure. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why is it important that even in the political structure and the world's economy today that our country line up with Israel? Because if you line up with Israel, you're on the right side. And for those of you who want to think that maybe the U.S. will always be on Israel's side, every nation will line up against Israel, folks. There's a reason why our country is falling apart. There's a reason why. There's a reason why it feels like it's going down the tubes, because things are not going to get better. And there will come a day where even the United States will turn its back on Israel. To pray for the peace of Jerusalem is actually to pray for rough times for Jerusalem. Do you know that? Because, because before the peace of Jerusalem comes, it has to endure one more siege, doesn't it? But to pray for the peace of Jerusalem is basically to pray for your kingdom come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven you know you and I may not face tribulation but I think it's important for us to understand what's going to come in the tribulation period for this reason the specter of what is going to take place in this world should motivate us all the more to carry out the mission of being ambassadors for Christ it really should you see. We're beginning to see, even on a small scale in our nation, what the rage and hatred that is going to happen to those who, who stand with Christ. They're not even hiding it. They're, call, they're calling their demonstration "Nights of Rage. Have you seen that? Nights of Rage. When I saw that this week, I thought about Martin Luther and the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He said this. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure, and one little word shall fell him. Church, the tribulation is going to be horrible. It is. It's going to be horrible, which is why we ought to be busy right now evangelizing the world that we're called to be in right now. Your friends and neighbors who don't know Christ, they're gonna, they may possibly go through it. I don't know. Or their kids may go through it. But here's the one thing that I know. Satan is going to do his worst. He's going to do his worst, but he's not going to prevail. He's not going to prevail. He's going to crush Jerusalem. He's going to desecrate worship in the temple. He's going to think he's won a major victory, but in the end, he will be swept away. By Almighty God. Luther ended that hymn with these lines talking to us as believers. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. You know where we're supposed to line up with? God's truth. And then his final triumphant line His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is forever. Sometimes we get a little confused in our thinking. The U.S. isn't forever. Do you understand that? (laughs) The United States is not forever. We're not going to be the new Israel that that carries the banner. No, Israel will return to its prominence because that's the way God wants it to be. So don't put your allegiance to a flag or a country that one day is going to turn on Israel. Israel. I'm not saying not to be patriotic. Don't mishear me here. But put your ultimate allegiance to the one whose kingdom is forever. Put your ultimate allegiance there. Who knows how much time we have left. If we knew, I think we'd all be quaking in our boots right now. But we ought to be living as though we're the last Generation that gets the opportunity to share the gospel, should we not? We ought to be living like we're the last generation that has that chance. Enjoy the minor victories like we got this week. Enjoy those. And be reminded that God is still on his throne. I think that was just grace that God gave us this week. I really do. And we should celebrate that. And that ought to motivate us. That same God who can change the hearts of some really wicked people in our country can change hearts of our friends and neighbors, can't he? So let's be ambassadors. Let's be good ambassadors. (laughs) God will one day get the attention of the world. (laughs) The world is doing its best to shut him out. (laughs) But he will one day get the attention of this world in a way that they will never, ever be able to deny his presence and his greatness. Father, Father, If we were writing this, we probably wouldn't write in a tribulation. We wouldn't write in judgment. We wouldn't write in the destruction of Jerusalem. But you, in your infinite wisdom, you, you've chosen that this will be the way that, that history goes. And so, Lord, I pray that one, <laughs> that we would be sure of where we stand before you. That we would make our calling and election sure, as the, as the Bible says. And two, that we would be motivated to be ambassadors for Christ. We do thank you for the victories of this past week. We thank you for the reminder that our God is more powerful than any legislature, more powerful than, than a political party. But we also have been reminded that the forces of hell are pretty strong and they are howling right now. May we be faithful with the gospel, I pray. That's the answer. It's, it's what's changed our hearts. It's what will change the hearts of those in the world around us, Lord. So give us a compassionate, gracious heart that is willing to share the gospel. Give us boldness to defend the truth, to speak the truth. May we proclaim it with confidence, because it is the answer. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.